The Wake Knot by Robert McMinn Chapter 18 Kayak As they drew near, they passed every minute some fisher's log canoe, in which worked with net or line the criminal who had saved his life by fleeing to St. Guthlac and becoming his man forthwith. The canoeing place was at the camping municipal near Riberac on the Dron River, a tributary of a tributary of the Dordogne. They set off from the cottage mid-morning, stopping in the main town at the Leclerc supermarket to get supplies for a picnic lunch. Then, through gesture and poor French, they established that they could do any one of three distances, leaving their car parked at the campsite and being dropped off by minibus at their embarkation point. Given that Charlie was going to have to do all the work, they arranged for a relatively short outing, starting at saint maillard de dron The mini-bus trip was fairly awful. They had to wait for a few other punters and then waited around while all the kayaks and canoes were loaded onto a trailer. They were then driven on the narrow, winding roads from Riberac to saint maillard parallel to the river in some places. Charlie felt queasy from car sickness by the time they arrived. Their kayak was red, and they had paid extra for a waterproof barrel in which to keep their electronic devices and food. Chris struggled into his life jacket without complaint, and Charlie helped him into the back of the kayak. She then kneeled in the front with the paddle, and they set off with the current in the direction of Riberac. This end of the Dron wasn't as crowded as the upper reaches of the Dordogne, but it was still a popular activity and they saw boats from a number of different rental companies all around them. There were kayaks, canoes, pedal boats, and even windsurfers in training being instructed by a bullet-headed man in a black wetsuit. Charlie tried to adjust their pace so that they weren't surrounded by people all the time. The sun was directly overhead, and it was warm work. Chris sat behind her, chatting and taking photos, trying to make himself useful, clearly feeling guilty about being a passenger. She didn't mind. There was something about the clear, shallow, green water and the buzzing of the dragonflies, the occasional splash of the paddle, that was very relaxing. Being busy steering and keeping the forward momentum kept her mind from Meg. After half an hour or so, her shoulders and hips were aching from being in the unaccustomed position, She adjusted to a seated posture, though almost immediately regretted doing so because her back ached even more trying to paddle in this position, and she got a wet backside from the bottom of the boat. She went back to kneeling, and Chris, sensitive to her discomfort, suggested a brief stop for a rest and a drink. She identified a stony beach and steered them over to it, driving the kayak into the stones and then hopping out to pull it further up onto the shore. Chris climbed cautiously out and they sat on a fallen tree for a while. Chris rubbed her shoulders with his one good hand and asked if she was regretting the trip. No, it's good, she said. I've always wanted to do it and it is beautiful. It's so great to see the country from this angle instead of from a road. It's a different pace of life. Another world. A wetter world, Chris said. That. Another half-hour session, they stopped again, this time for lunch. They had a baguette, some brie and some good ham, as well as a pot of mustard brought along from the cottage. Using a sharp blade from a penknife, they split the bread and stuffed it with ham and cheese. Charlie had worked up an appetite and Chris was happy to keep her company. 
He was more or less always hungry, he said, though he was suffering withdrawal symptoms not having exercised in a few days. They had some mineral water and a couple of Cokes. Then they stuffed all their rubbish into the waterproof barrel and set off again. This stint was the last. Charlie took it easy, barely paddling, except to keep the kayak heading in the right direction. Behind her, Chris became obsessed with trying to get a good photograph of a dragonfly that kept landing on their waterproof barrel. By the time they arrived at the Riberat Camping Municipal and in spite of the high-factor sun cream, Charlie could feel a slight sunburn on the back of her neck. She beached the kayak and one of the guys from the rental came to help her lift it out of the water. Ça va? he said, smiling at Chris, who carried the paddle under his arm and the waterproof barrel in his one good hand. They retrieved their rubbish, camera gear and everything else and headed off for the golf. It had been a good trip, but Charlie was glad it was over. It was around three in the afternoon. They drove back to the cottage, where they found a note stuck to the front door. Knock on the door of the chateau after five, it read. Edward Moss is expecting you. This was exciting, but they had to fit in a visit to the hospital in between, so they quickly changed their clothes and dashed out again, pausing only to make sure the doors and windows were all secured. Meg was groggy but awake sitting up in bed, dozing, while an older couple argued over the top of her head. The man was black, with greying hair and a salt-and-pepper beard, black-rimmed spectacles. The woman was white, about the same age, wearing blue jeans and a scarlet top. Her hair was dyed red. When they saw Charlie, realisation dawned. Meg's parents. Charlie introduced herself and then gently suggested they go for a cup of coffee so that she and Chris could visit Meg. There was a two-visitor rule in the intensive care unit. She talked briefly with them in the corridor. Chris stayed in the room and sat down in the chair next to the bed. Charlie joined him on the other side. She took Meg's hand gently and received a squeeze in return. I feel so bad, Chris said. It should have been me in there. What happened? Meg smiled and squeezed Charlie's hand again. She spoke slowly, in bullet points. Heard a noise, she said, outside. Got up quickly, been reading. Knocked my water over. Ah. Went downstairs to see. Thought it might be you two, back. Someone came at me out of the dark, back of my head. Woke up here. Dreamed I was drowning. Have the gendarmes been here? Charlie asked. Earlier. Couldn't tell them anything. Chris sat in silence, realising at the same time as Charlie that the flat hadn't been the target after all, or might not have been, because it was Megan herself who had knocked over the glass of water and whoever had attacked her was outside, in the dark. Back at the cottage, Charlie grabbed a shower, changed her clothes, putting on something more suited for visiting a little chateau fort. She was assuming the mosses, the owners would be posh, if not actual, aristocrats. Chris sat reading and then took his own shower. After she'd helped him into a shirt, they spent ten minutes or so sitting on the couch in the cottage, hips and shoulders touching, not talking much, but kissing like teenagers. It was the relief, really. Meg was almost up and about. The attack seemed more and more to be a random incident, maybe somebody looking to burglarise the hermitage. But even in the midst of all this... Charlie could feel herself withdrawing emotionally, watching herself from across the room, 
Was this really going to continue when they got back to England? It didn't feel as if there was a future to it. I'm snogging like a 15-year-old, she thought. When the clock hit five, they locked up the cottage and walked up the road to the chateau fort. They approached the blank face of the gate. There was no bell push, nor any other way of making their presence known, so Chris pulled on the ring, giving it a twist, and the gate opened. They walked inside, passed through the gatehouse, and found themselves on a rough driveway. The worn tracks through the grass led to what looked like a garage or a storage shed. To their right was a large house, separate from the rough C-shape of the fort, but on the same grounds. They approached what looked like the front door, and before they could reach it, it opened. The old man who opened it was about 1.7 metres tall, with thin white hair and a patch over his right eye. Apart from this piratical detail, he looked prosperous, suntanned, wearing red linen trousers and a white linen shirt. On his feet, he was wearing socks and sandals. He held out his hand to Charlie, turning his head slightly so that his good eye met hers. Hello! Pleased to meet you. Edward Moss, Christian said you were interested in a bit of local history. Charlie Stone, she said, trying not to prejudge the red trousers. And this is my friend Chris. We've been staying down the road. I was terribly sorry to hear about your troubles. Tragic. Absolutely tragic. It has been a shocking time. I understand the other family have gone home. I think so, though they never said anything to me. We only stayed because I wanted to be here when my friend Megan's parents arrived. There was a pause. Well, uh, come in, please. Uh, this place is nothing fancy. I've always been a little embarrassed when the locals call it a chateau, but I suppose it makes them feel the village is more important than it is. Come in, come in. And after that third invitation, he led them inside through a short hallway and into a modern kitchen where a trim woman in her fifties was opening the oven door to check on something. I've got biscuits in, she said, without looking up, but they're not quite right yet. I'll put on a pot of coffee and we can have them when it's dripped through. She stood up and looked at Charlie for the first time. Or would you prefer tea? Either is fine, said Charlie, and Chris nodded agreement. This is my wife, Amelia, said Edward. She immediately started planning some fresh cookies when she heard you were coming. She came forward to shake their hands. I didn't have the eggs for cake, she said, so cook as it is. Please, Edward said, indicating the long benches running along the length of the enormous oak kitchen table. Sit down. As you can see, I have fetched my local history boxes from the attic. There were three or four box files nestling in a cardboard box at one end of the table. Charlie and Chris sat down on the kitchen bench and Edward sat opposite. Meanwhile, Amelia busied herself with the coffee filter machine. When they'd settled, Edward said, Now, what is it that piqued your interest? Charlie hesitated, trying not to look too obviously at his eye patch. Well... It was the church, really. I love medieval churches, and I was really excited that there was such an old one in the village. But first of all, we couldn't find its name. Then I became interested in its stained-glass windows and some of the things on display in there. Unfortunately, when Dr Patel was murdered, I felt a bit weird going in. 
Understandable, understandable, said Edward. He had a plummy accent, but his personality seemed warm enough. This has been a shocking week or two, and you've been in the wars too, it appears, he said, turning to Chris. They explained about Chris's bike incident. Edward seemed bewildered that so much ill fortune had befallen the residents of the Hermitage in such a short space of time. Meanwhile, Amelia had pulled the cookies from the oven and slid them onto a cooling rack which she placed on the table between them. Then she brought over the pot of coffee, cups and sugar and sat down next to her husband. Charlie estimated that Amelia had 20 years on her husband. He looked like he was in his late 60s or early 70s while she looked little older than 50. She had blonde hair and a thin, heart-shaped face. She was wearing a light green skirt a blouse and a crop jacket, underneath the apron that she now removed. Well, the cookies are cooling all the time, depending on your tolerance for hot things. Dig in, she said, pouring the coffee. I did ask Barb if anything like this had happened before. The attacks, I mean, said Charlie, stirring her coffee. She said if anyone would know, it would be you. Well, Edward began, I did undertake a trawl of the local newspaper microfish records a few years ago, and I've got some cuttings in here. He reached for one of the box files, opened it, and began rooting through the manila folders within. When he found the one he wanted, he said, ah, and pushed the rest aside. Let's see, most of this dates back to from before we came, but there was an unfortunate case here. He laid out some clippings in front of Charlie, upside down from his perspective. There was a family uh, who moved into one of the properties a little way out of the village. I believed it was owned by the commune and used as social housing. A few months after they arrived, someone broke into the house in the night and murdered two of them. He pointed at the middle clipping, which had a headline from a local newspaper, Une famille massacrée dans Lucignac. Beneath it was a grainy photo of the family with an inset photo of their house. Charlie looked at it closely. Were this family North African? Algerian, yes. They came up from Marseille looking for a better environment for their children. They were supposed to go to school in Vertayag, but when both their parents were murdered, they went back to live with relatives in Marseille. What a horrible story. Yes, but I do think that was the only time, previous to this, I mean, when something so awful happened. But is that all you wanted to ask? I thought you were interested in the church. No, that's right, Charlie said. I am very interested in the church. You see, I'm a police officer in Lincolnshire and St Guthlac is one of our main local saints. Ah, I see, yes, that's very interesting, said Edward, putting the murdered clippings away. Our local restaurateur is from your neck of the woods. It's a small world, isn't it? He eyeballed them in turn. The church here wasn't always dedicated to St. Guthlac. It was originally uh, dedicated to St. Giraud, who was the Bishop of Béziers when the church was built. But you know this area was on the pilgrim trail. Yes, we were in Nobetere last weekend, but I thought it was named for St. Bartholomew before the change. It's complicated. St. Giraud was its name when the church was built, 
and then it was named for Guthlac and briefly for St. Bartholomew after the massacres of the 16th century. But that was seen as a political choice and was unpopular, so it was changed back to Guthlac. Giraud having been forgotten, I suppose. Charlie opened her eyes wide. It was complicated. So what prompted the change to Guthlac? There was an occasion when a group of pilgrims sought sanctuary in the church. They were being pursued by bandits. They were from England, I suppose, from Lincolnshire. But this was a long time after Guthlac, Charlie said. Oh yes, hundreds of years after, of course. This happened in the 14th century, I think. He was what? 8th century, she said. A Mercian saint. Right, but these pilgrims were from his base... Uh, where was that? He started rifling through his papers. Charlie said, Crowland, uh, there's an abbey. Yes, odd name, said Edward. Amelia offered more coffee. Chris held out his cup and took a second biscuit. Edward went on. They were a little lost and being picked off by bandits every time they camped. They came across the church and asked the local priest for sanctuary and they had with them a... Whip, supplied Charlie. Well, yes, uh, but it was a scourge, you know, like a cat and nine tails. They said it was a relic from their abbey. So they were claiming to have Guthlac's whip. His scourge, yes, and the local priest, a former knight who had seen the light, as it were, used it and his sword, which had been in retirement. The scabbard was rusty, the legend says, and used them both to drive the bandits away. So it goes, anyway, and the pilgrims were so grateful for this miracle, uh, they gifted the scourge to the church, and it was renamed. They sat in silence for a few moments. So that's what I saw, is it? Chris said, suddenly. It was the scourge. I saw the local priest with it on that first Saturday. Edward regarded him sceptically. Amelia said what he was thinking. I honestly doubt that the priest would have had his hands on anything that old and valuable, she said. But maybe they have a replica in the church to illustrate the story. I think the whole tale sounds unlikely, said Charlie. Even then, even in the 13th or 14th century, the whip would have been impossibly ancient. If there were pilgrims, if there was a whip... Even then it was a replica or an outright fake. It's a nice story, though, said Amelia, fairly harmless as these things go. I suppose, said Charlie. Uh, so when would the stained glass window have been done? We think shortly after the name change. It's very similar to other depictions I've seen, Charlie said. Oh, an outright copy, I'm sure, said Edward. So that's our church, renamed in honour of a... Mercian, saint, with a scourge thrown in, which in the story has magical properties, able to drive away bandits or so on, so that they never return. One of the more useful relics, said Chris. They stayed a little longer, out of politeness, and Chris worked his way through more of Amelia's cookies. Amelia didn't seem to want any herself. Charlie thought she probably didn't eat much fat or sugar, given her slight frame and slim figure. As they stepped through the old oak gates of the fort, Charlie looked across at the church and said, Shall we take one last look around, now we know the legend? 
Chapter 19. Scourge. And here and there in those evil days, the master who had fled from the cruelty of Frenchmen, who would have done him as he had done to the others. They'd been in the fort for about 90 minutes. There was no clock on the church tower, but from the position of the sun in the sky, Chris thought it was after half past six. He was disappointed not to have seen more of the fort. The house part that Edward and Amelia lived in was just like a large country property. He'd liked the courtyard layout and wondered what had been stored in the outbuildings. They walked round to the front entrance of the church and stepped into the shadowed porch. Ahead of them, one of the twin oak doors was just ajar. Chris pushed it fully open and stood aside to let Charlie in. The place was deserted, the ambient light low. On their right, the door up to the balcony and bell tower was closed. Opposite, the glass case still contained the probably fake, dried-up piece of leather that may have been masquerading as Guthlac's mythical scourge. The atmosphere was oppressive. Celia Patel's spectral presence weighed heavily on the air. Charlie walked over to take a closer look. This isn't even the right kind of whip, she said. The one in the stained glass window is a proper scourge, a multi-thonged lash, the kind that people used to use for self-mortification. This is just somebody's old buggy whip. To be fair, Chris said, nobody has tried to tell us that this is the scourge. There isn't even a label on it. True, Charlie said, turning away, losing interest. She walked into the church, saying, I still think it's weird how often they change the name of this place. Names on top of older names, like the lyrics of that Frank Sinatra song, A Palimpsest. But it was a good story. It's no wonder people don't know what it's called. Chris caught up with her. She sat down in one of the benches, facing towards the sanctuary. She shuffled along when he sat down next to her. And what did you think of the other story? What other? Oh, you mean the murders? That was horrible. Didn't seem to have much to do with us, though. They sat in silence. Then Charlie said, I should really call Serret again. Meg's parents will have spoken to him by now. I should get this over with. So we can go home. Yes. And then what? Chris had a burning curiosity about what would happen next. This now felt like killing time, which was all it was. He needed to get home and face up to the rest of his life and his credit card bill find some kind of job. Neither of them were willing to broach the subject of their relationship, it seemed. You really not going back to journalism, she said, almost reading his mind. Not paid work, no. Might write a book, or start a blog, or both, who knows, but I need some other way to pay the rent. Get out of London, probably. He dangled that out there, wondering if she would take the bait. She was silent for a minute. She really could read his mind. It would be insane to discuss moving in together after a holiday romance. There it was, the truth. Chris wondered if this was a preamble to something else, but she said no more. He felt deflated. It would be insane. But people did insane things all the time. Still, what she said forced him to examine his motives... Was he looking to start a relationship or looking for a life raft to get him out of London? You're right, he said finally, but I would like to see you again. She turned towards him. He leaned in. 
they kissed. What happened next made them jump so much that Charlie bit his lip. There was a loud snap, like a cracking tree branch, and a sonorous voice shouted, Salbet, comment dansez-vous soyez la sainteté de l'église? Retirez-vous dehors! Chris looked around. There, in his Capello Romano hat, was the priest, his face red with rage. In his right hand he held a whip, not the multi-thong kind, but the lion-tamer kind. It was that which had made the loud snap, and now did so again as the priest repeated himself. He stepped menacingly towards them, threatening to snap the whip again. Chris stood quickly, his lip bleeding, and felt Charlie standing beside him, Chris opened his hands in a gesture of bewilderment. Vous êtes des gens, diable, avec vos amis infidèles dégoûtants. Diable noir, quittez cet endroit. The priest was indicating the door and gesturing with his non-whip hand at it, clearly intending for them to leave. Charlie tried speaking to him, keeping a voice reasonable and calm. Excusez-moi, monsieur, mais parlez-vous anglais this only seemed to enrage the priest even more. As he made to crack the whip again, this time way too close to them, Charlie held her hands up in defeat and started to head for the exit. The priest gave them space to pass, still holding the whip at the ready. Chris followed Charlie out of the main entrance, and they kept walking through the porch and out into the shadowed street. The sun had passed behind the buildings opposite. They looked back. The priest's face stood out stark white in the doorway while his cassock and hat were invisible against the shadowy interior. He cracked the whip one last time and then slammed the door. They looked at each other, both equally bewildered. What the fuck was that, said Chris. I I'm still processing, said Charlie. They stood looking back at the church. Charlie's hands were on her hips. Fuck! My French isn't good enough to keep up with what he was saying. Did you hear anything? I heard Eglise, right, so that's church. What else? The first thing he said was something about beasts, bet. I know that word, and I heard, I think I heard, black devils. Diable noir, agreed Charlie. Yeah, OK, something about black devils and beasts and the church. You got network? Chris pulled out his phone. No. Never do here. OK, let's try it, Bob's. They walked a few metres down the road to Bob's courtyard and opened the gate. There was nobody around outside, and when they knocked on the front door, there was no response, not even the barking of the dog. Charlie pressed her lips together. OK, let's drive to Riverac. I've got Serre's card. There won't be anybody at the barracks at this time, I don't think, but we can have a look. And if there's nobody there, we can call Serre on his mobile. At least there's a signal there. This is why they call them mobile phones, said Chris. They walked quickly back to the hermitage, retrieved the car keys and Serre's card, their wallets, and then set off in the golf. Looking over at her from the passenger seat, Chris noted that Charlie looked grim but determined. What are you thinking? he said. This is starting to make some kind of sense. Really? because I'm not seeing any. That's because you're not seeing things from the priest's point of view. Which is what, exactly? He's a French priest in a village that has hardly any French people in it, no congregation to speak of. He's probably based elsewhere, but every week he turns up at the church. It's Thursday. 
We should have known he'd be there. Not at this time of the evening, surely? Dunno, but around this time last week he found the body of Celia Patel, didn't he? What, you think he was just surprised to find us there and overreacted? Overreacted, yes, but not just because he was surprised. What then? Charlie shook her head a little. Still processing, she said. It'll come, give me time. When they reached the gendarmerie in Riberac, it was after seven. While not exactly deserted, the barracks was on the night shift, so there were only a couple of officers on duty and no civilian staff. Serret wasn't around. Charlie asked if they could call him as a matter of urgency. Reluctantly, the uniformed officer on duty looked up Serret's home number and dialed it. Charlie and Chris sat on the uncomfortable benches in the lobby. After a few minutes, the officer emerged from the office and told them Serret was on his way. They waited half an hour or so. Both of them got up to pace the floor, mainly to relieve the pressure on their buttocks. When Serret arrived, Charlie turned to him and said, I have a theory I wanted to share with you. Serret made a mooey of respect, nodded his head and indicated the way to his office. There were only two chairs, so for a few minutes he went back and forth, borrowing another from surrounding offices. Finally, the three of them were squeezed into his tight office space. Serres sat behind his desk, clasped his hands together in front of him and said, Madame Stone, we, Chris and I, were just chased from the church in Lusignac by a deranged priest with a whip, she began. Serres' eyebrows went up, but he didn't interrupt. Earlier today, Charlie went on, we learned about a double murder in Lusignac 15 years ago. What was this case, please? Interrupted Serre. A family uh, from Marseille who moved into the village. Their parents were murdered in their beds. The children were adopted by relatives back in Marseille. Serre nodded slowly. I remember this case, he said. Did you ever catch the killer? Charlie asked. Serre paused, thinking, No. This case is still open. There was silence in the room. Charlie looked at him. Chris wondered what she was thinking. Was she about to connect the old case with these latest murders? There's no pattern to the killings, Charlie said. I read the newspaper reports from 15 years ago. My French isn't great, but I think they said the parents were stabbed and the telephone line cut, so help arrived too late to save them. Yes, uh, the same knife was used to cut the telephone connection to the wall in the house. The two victims bled to death. The children found the bodies the next morning and ran for help. Serre paused. Why do you mention this case? Uh, it has to do with my theory. We were both a bit shocked when the priest attacked us and neither of us speak French very well. But I think one of the things he said was black devils? The family murdered 15 years ago were from Algeria. Celia Patel was black. Meg, too, was black, or mixed race at least. Charlie paused, staring intently at Serre, who was looking sceptical, then said, mainly to Chris, Do you still believe there is a connection between the murders and your accident? I'm not sure, Chris said. He looked at Charlie, who was shaking her head. I don't think there's necessarily a connection, she said. Without commenting on her racially motivated murder theory, Serre nodded and said, I have some news about the trail bike. 
The boy, who we suspected was riding it in the village that day, has returned home. He has been interviewed. He confesses he was pursued by a black car that day, but successfully evaded it by cutting across a field. He has been staying with a girlfriend since then. So he can't identify the black car, said Chris, feeling deflated. No, uh, but we have eliminated him from the inquiry concerning the murders. He did not see anything in the village that day. Chris sat back in his chair. Serre had still not responded to Charlie's theory of the killings. Now she spoke again. Did the boy see the priest that day? Uh, we did not ask him about the priest, said Serre, because seeing a priest in a church would not be considered anything remarkable, would it? She persisted. No, Serre said slowly. But if anybody did see the priest that day, a Wednesday, it would be unusual, she said, because the priest's only scheduled day in Lusignac is Thursday. If he was seen on a Wednesday, it would be indicative. Serre now said, Are you saying that this village has a problem with a racist priest? Charlie nodded to him apologetically. I think he's more than racist, Mr Serre. I think he's deranged. What Chris and I saw today was positively unhinged. I think he has some kind of a delusion about the legend on which his church is based, which concerns the story of a saint with a scourge who drove demons from an island in Lincolnshire 1,300 years ago. A scourge, said Serre. A whip. Charlie made a whipping motion with her hand, trying to clarify her meaning to the puzzled Serre. He was using a whip to drive us from the church today. I think he sees himself as uh, the protector of the village. Serre steepled his fingers. Chris was feeling dizzy, having heard Charlie's theory fully formed for the first time. This, began Serre, is possibly, he tailed off, looking at Charlie. Uh, there were details about the bodies we have not uh, released to the public. Did you notice any marks on your friend? Apart from the blood on the back of her head, no, she said. I jumped into the water to see if she was still alive. She was still warm, so I... She stopped. She held something in her hand, he said. Held what? Two pieces of string, uh, different colours, looped together like this. He opened his index and middle fingers on each hand into a V and then overlapped them, making a fair approximation of a wake knot. Charlie looked sick, shook her head. Why didn't we know about this, she said. What about Dr. Patel, Serre continued, when you were in the church? I saw her face, the rope around her neck, some scratches, Charlie shrugged. There were other details, Serre said. I will not distress you with them now. He looked at them both. But what you have said, we will interview this priest. <laughs> 